Hello world, welcome to another episode of The Deep Dive with Eyal Shai. My guest today is Anne-Laure Leconf. Hi, Anne-Laure. Hi, thanks so much for having me. <laughs> Thank you for coming on. Uh, yeah, what's an idea that's been helping you live well? An idea that's been really helpful to me is to stop thinking about goals as this kind of ladder that you climb. Thinking of goals as something linear that's that almost has a kind of step by step recipe that you should follow and instead thinking of goals and ambition in general as a cycle where you experiment and you keep on learning trying new things and having fun really yeah I really like that conception like in my own life there's a lot of emphasis on turning away from Um, looking at things as nouns and more like verbs or if you like you know from states to processes so I think it's going to be uh, right there and um, right away interested in hearing about the development of it uh, I assume that this implies um, that there were times where it was more about goals or um, for you or that you've noticed that this is kind of the default path is to look at Uh, check marks and and something like that so how how did it happen or come about that you began going in this direction yeah absolutely um, I kind of discovered this both through personal experience and then through the research that I'm doing at university from personal experience I started following a very linear path really trying to climb that you ladder of success. I tried to do my best in school. I got a good job at Google. And then after that, I tried to do the next thing, kind of like keeping on climbing, climbing the ladder, doing a startup that didn't work out. And I found myself completely lost because for the very first time in my life, I didn't have a map of what I should be doing next. I didn't know what the next steps should be. So I went back to the drawing board and I asked myself, what is something that I would love to keep on doing every day, waking up and study and learn about, even if success was out of the equation, even if it was just doing the thing for its own sake. And for me, it was learning about the brain, about the mind. Why do we think the way we think? Why do we feel the way we feel? Why do we make the decisions that we make? Why do we connect in the way that we connect with each other? So I went back to school, went back to university at the ripe age of 28, and I started studying neuroscience. And through my studies there, I discovered something called the metacognitive cycle, which basically shows that when we think about thinking, when we practice a higher level of cognition, We tend to first plan things and then we do these things and then we learn mm. from that experience and then we adapt our behavior based on that data that we collected consciously and subconsciously. And I thought that was absolutely fascinating and I started applying that to a lot of different areas in my life to the way I was learning. So instead of going through the curriculum in a linear way, I started being more experimental. Being like okay let me try this project how does that work okay I'm learning something here this is not working so where do I go now and branching out and trying to connect different dots together and repeating that cycle of learning that metacognitive cycle as I was learning and then I applied it to the way I was building my business so in the same way I would do a little experiment almost like a scientist and testing a hypothesis mm -hmm. and seeing what data I could collect and then adapt my behavior and my decisions based on that on that data and that has been incredibly powerful for me and I feel like in the end the impact is is similar on paper in the sense that I do feel like I'm progressing and I'm growing and I'm learning but the path is a lot messier <laughs> it looks a lot more chaotic but it's also a lot more fun yeah. Yeah, I like it. A lot more fun, for sure. Um, I'd like to hear, if you don't mind, more about uh, the, the period of time when things are kind of derailed from, from the usual narrative. Uh, do you know if there's a, a single trigger there or just a, a complex of thing? But uh, what, what kind of makes you veer off the, the beaten path? 
Yes. Um, there's a, a word that I really like, which is liminality, which is basically a word describing, it just means the in-between, really, the threshold. It's the same root as subliminal, where it's under mm -hmm. the threshold of perception. And basically, life is a collection of in-between moments. And there are moments like these of transition where you know exactly what is the next step that you should take to bridge that gap between where you are and where you want to go. And there are other liminal moments where you don't know. It's not clear whether you have an idea of where you want to go, but you're not sure, quite sure exactly how you're going to get there. Or sometimes you just generally have no idea what you want. You don't know what your goals and ambitions are anymore. And it's very tempting in those cases to just kind of cling onto the ladder to try and go back to that linear, mm. safe, comforting path where everything seems to be clear. But if you find a way to develop a mindset where you become comfortable in that in-between space, in that liminal moment, in that playground that you have in front of you, if you start seeing it as a playground, a lot of good things can happen. So I think, to answer your question, those moments where we find ourselves derailing from that linear path can either be paralyzing and scary and we just like rush back to, to the linear path as quickly as possible, or we can use them as an opportunity to see what else is out there. So I think, yeah, any moment where we're in the in-between and we're not quite sure what the next step is, is one of those opportunities. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this can be seen in, in the context of, you know, the nine to five lifestyle and the security, the security that's in having something that's uh, of a known quality, even if, if it's not the highest quality and you know it. I think it also applies when you look at um, what you do and, and your identity in terms of a professional identity or even something you do like if I think about myself or other people, I think it's very telling that you um, really took a, a very different path and went and went uh, learning and studying. I think uh, that is something that we might get averse to as we as we grow older, and then that poses another challenge because sometimes we just fall out of love with whatever it is that we might have spent. Some, in some decade, in some cases, a, a decade studying, right? And then you also see yourself, well, I brought myself into this position to the, where I have all this knowledge and this can, this is what I could do for a living. And in, in, in one way, satisfy that kind of a voice of culture that tells you earn money, you know, have high status or something, but you just don't like it anymore. Right. And I think it's very brave to to go and actually be a, a beginner again and take on a new subject. So. Yeah. And I think you have a really good point here is that our society is judging our value based on how productive we are. And we start when we're a kid and then, you know, teenager and uh, beginning as a student we're not that productive. We're not productive contributors to society. And that's okay because it's seen as if society is investing in us as future productive citizens of society. So that's why also that you keep on climbing the ladder. And this is how you're taught in school. You're a kid and they tell you, learn this. So next you can go to high school and then learn this. So next you can go to university. Mm. Now get that job and work on that project so you can get that promotion. And then you'll get here. And if you do a good job, you'll become a manager. We'll give you a team and then you'll have a bigger budget. And there's always a next step to climb. And it's really hard to, as you said, go back to a place where you don't really know anymore what your value is supposed to be to society mm. because you're going back to the drawing board. You're going back to relearning everything. You're, you're not contributing. You're, you're learning again. And that can be a very disconcerting feeling, especially if you've been pretty successful on paper in a previous career, where I know that in my case, it was really weird at the beginning because 
when people ask me, people always ask, ask you, what do you do? That's one of the very first questions that mm -hmm. you're asked if you're at a party, you meet someone new, what do you do? And I used to answer that question by saying, I work at Google. And that was, you know, years ago is when it was still a very cool company. <laughs> so people, <laughs> people would say, oh, wow, you work at Google. And I didn't have anything else to say. People would almost immediately apply that label on me that, oh, she must be smart. She must be quite creative. She must be quite ambitious because she works at Google. And then when people ask me, what do you do? And I say, I have a bunch of little things. I, I write online. I, I, I study. I mm -hmm. and Just stuttering, and, basically. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I didn't have that label to cling on to anymore. And I know this is a very common experience for people who decide to leave that linear path that they were on to try and explore something else. Uh, you don't have that kind of social safety net anymore. And that can be quite uncomfortable, but totally worth it, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. Yeah, it's it's really interesting too the whole uh, dynamic between society and individuals where, yeah, you're supposed to bring value uh, to society and you know, presumably you're going to be compensated for it monetarily and, and in terms of status too. Uh, but I just thought today about the job of, um, the CEO of the Israeli lottery, right? As I, I just thought today, it's like, what a weird job. It's like this person has to make sure that more people are like addicted to gambling so that they can funnel the money. And then he tells himself probably that he's doing a good job because it's giving money back to all these educational things and stuff. But in the end, he earns a lot. So he really, his incentive is in every way to get people to go gambling. And it's just such a weird thing that, you know, most most of us would look at him and say he's he's successful. But in, in what sense of the word? It's It's very, it was kind of just one of these things that are, kind of a puzzling or bewildering to, to really think about. Um, yeah. And uh, I'm also interested in, um, so then if you, if you're feeling for a while that you're maybe uh, burnt out or something adjacent to that in terms of conception and then looking for a way forward and having no roadmap is something that I like how you put it. Um, how do you, how do you begin uh, constructing one, not a complete one, not, but you know, the first experiments, basically experiments that you're talking about, do you, um, did you, in your case, go with intuition, with rational thought about what you need? Um, how, what did it look like for you? Yes. Uh, so as I mentioned, uh, I think it's, uh, it's really helpful to take inspiration from the scientific method where you just have a hypothesis and you design the simplest experiment possible to test this. So in terms of choosing your first experiment, you need to pick something that you can do right now, not something where you need different resources to what you have or different context, et cetera, because that's the best way to do nothing, just to wait. Mm. You know, it's the, the very uh, common when slash if fallacy where you just right. wait until you have everything you need to be able to take action. So in order to not fall prey to this, it's very important to pick something very simple that you can do right now. In my case, I've always loved writing. And so, and that's something that doesn't really require any kind of money or anything like that. You know, you can just grab your laptop and just start typing. So my first experiment was to try and write a hundred articles in a hundred days. It didn't mm. matter how long they were. Some of them were just a few hundred words, very, very short, but that was my experiment. And what I wanted to learn from this was, do I like it to the point where I could do it regularly and not mm. get bored of it? And the second thing I wanted to see was, would my writing be helpful to at least some people? And in order to collect that kind of data to answer these questions, I needed to do it for long enough to publish enough articles because it's not with just one article they're going to be able to answer that question. So that was my first experiment. But I think anyone can design very simple experiments like these to, you know, that I'm not a big fan of people who say, I'll just quit your job and try something new. I I think it's it's way healthier while you're trying to figure out what to do to 
do those experiments on the side. Do something where even if you keep your day job, don't create that stress for yourself of worrying about money at this stage. Do something that you can do after work for an hour, whether it's writing, could be a bit of design. I don't know if maybe you want to teach. So maybe find an evening class that you can contribute to. And every week you go and teach something there. Um, if you want to coach people, if you want to learn about another culture, a language, there's so many different ways to do this. It just needs to be simple. It needs to be repeatable. So you can, again, same as an, a scientific experiment, you enough trials so you know if it's working or not. Mm. And then the last thing that's important, and again, just like a scientist, is try and actually observe actively what the experience is like. And that could be taking notes, that could be journaling, that could be doing it with a friend. So you have regular conversations together and you, you just ask your, each other, how is it going? <laughs> how does it feel? Do you, do you enjoy it? Is it hard? Are you facing any challenges, etc.? So not just blindly repeating the same experiment mm. and waiting to have a Eureka moment that's never going to come. Instead, being proactive and, and practicing again, that, that metacognitive cycle that I mentioned where you plan, you do, and then you reflect and you adapt. And you repeat that cycle and you should start seeing what kind of impact it has, it has both in terms of your success and also in terms of your well-being. Yeah, I think, I think that's a, that's a big one. I mean, how little focus there is on, on well-being in this whole system that we're uh, brought up in, right? This whole talk about us being valuable to society or something. It, uh, there's almost nothing there about how, how, well we are while we do it and you know this is what this podcast is about uh doing well in life or living well and uh really bringing this to to people's attention is like hey if we're here for anything you know some people may say we don't have a purpose or anything like that uh, but if we are to come up with one purpose to me it doesn't make uh any other one other than just doing well it really doesn't make sense um What's the point? And, you know, doing well already has folded within it uh, the notion that you are doing good unto others and that you're aligning your own needs with other people's needs and and so on. I want to ask you, because you come from this world of, of writing now and uh, by now, uh, at least my perception is that you, you're, I don't know how many subscribers, like my podcast is tiny, but my perception is that you've been doing this for, for long enough and consistently enough and well enough um, that you have uh, quite the following. And uh, I want to ask you something that I encountered in an interview by uh, Tim Ferriss of uh, Mark Manson. Um, I assume you're not on his level yet, but uh, just wait a couple of years <laughs> um, if you want. See, I'm not sure that he's doing well. So here's the thing. Mark Manson very openly kind of uh, traced back the origins of his career on Tim Ferriss's podcast. And it was very interesting for me because it seemed that from his humble beginnings as a writer of just for like SEO engines and stuff. So, you know, you have in 200 words, like insert the word like kitchen sink, like seven times with no justification. Right. So he's been doing that in the beginning. And then he started a blog about like pickup artistry. And then he moved on to like dating advice. And he's writing and he's saying he's been getting all this feedback from people of like, oh, you're, you're helping us a lot, which I don't doubt for a minute. But if you look throughout the thing, it really, you can see that his focus the whole time was to make money from it. So, and, and he was a, a definitely a scientist when it came to like what hooks people, right? What catches on, what becomes viral. He says it. Um, and for me as a, as a podcaster and occasional writer on my, on my sub stack, uh, it's, it's very interesting to navigate this space between popularity, which is uh, a kind of uh, give them what they want attitude and between authenticity, which is kind of like, listen, I want to write about cicadas today. Okay. It was like, I'm not going <laughs> to cater to necessarily to your wants. And uh, yeah, I'd like, I'd like to hear from you like, 
uh, how you how you think about it, how you introduced and when the concept of actually making a living from any of this. Um, yeah, how does it work for you? I named my company Nest Labs because Nest is the suffix that you add at the end of words to describe the quality of things. So uh, wellness, consciousness, awareness, etc. And labs is for laboratory. So I always wanted Nest Labs to be a personal laboratory where I could explore any ideas around these topics. And this is still how I use it nowadays. I always try and think about the content that I write as falling in the middle of a Venn diagram. If I can find something that I truly enjoy researching and writing about, and that also resonates with my audience, that's amazing. If I write about something that I truly enjoy researching and writing about, and it doesn't resonate with my audience, then that's fine. I'll already have had the joy of writing it. And the reality is that I'm not like Mark Manson, to be completely honest, to this day, I still have no idea what exactly is going to do well on my blog mm. and my newsletter. I sometimes pour my heart in an article. I spend days researching everything and rereading every word. And it's like crickets, basically. And sometimes I'm in a bit of a rush. I write a weekly newsletter, so I do have to send something every Thursday. And I will spend just that morning, a couple of hours writing about something I'm already quite familiar with that's fairly easy. And that seems kind of obvious and maybe a little bit boring to me, but I'm like, okay, maybe if that's helpful to a few people, at least, you know, I've sent a newsletter and I've delivered on my promise to provide them with something to read this week. And this is the newsletter where lots of people reply and say, that was amazing. Mm. I had no idea about that. <laughs> this is great. So the only rule I have is to show up every week and write something. And some weeks I feel more inspired than others. And I always start from a, a place of this is at least something that I find interesting. And the reality is that the less I know about the topic, the more interesting I find it. So those are the ones that take the longest. And sometimes it's something that I find interesting, but I know already about a lot about. And so it's not, doesn't bring me as much joy to write the article, but this so far has been zero correlation <laughs> between how much I enjoy <laughs> writing it and how much my audience enjoys the final product. So I try to not think about it too much. And in terms of authenticity and building a profitable business, making money, basically. Um, I've also always gone with following opportunities as they arise. So the first money I made with my newsletter was when people started replying and asking, oh, can, can I sponsor this? Uh, can I, can I, you know, can I pay you like a few hundred dollars and put an ad in there and I was like, okay, sure. And I was really not making a lot of money out of this. I had no outreach, nothing. I was not really proactive with it, but I was like, yeah, if you, if you want to give me money and it's like, you know, you're promoting a brand of coffee, like that's fine. That's not something that I feel uncomfortable <laughs> promoting in right. the newsletter, then, then that's okay. Um, and then in March, 2020, the pandemic happened. And then a lot of people started replying to my newsletter saying that they were feeling lonely, that they were feeling disconnected from the world, that uh, they, they felt like they, they didn't have the same creative energy that they had before when they could actually talk to people, basically, who cared about the same topics they did. So I figured, well, maybe I can help. So I created the private community, which is, which is paid. And I, uh, I immediately had hundreds of people joining. Now we have a few thousand people in the, in the community. That wasn't something that I planned for a very long time. That wasn't something I researched. I did no market analysis or anything like that. <laughs> I just responded to a demand that was there. And so that's just the way I do things. And I could, I, that's also why I'm not, you know, doing any courses or writing books about online marketing or anything like this, because I don't really have a method. It's very messy, but I do feel like if you write about things that you care about, people will find your content and then they will tell you what they need. And if you're up for it and you actually deliver 
on this. Usually it's pretty, what they want can be pretty aligned with, hmm. with what you want to give them. But that's again, provided that from a creative standpoint, the content that you put out there is aligned with what you care about. It's almost, um, you know, as, as a funnel, basically to use some marketing lingo, but if at mm -hmm. the top of my funnel, I only put out there content that I actually believe in and that I find interesting, the kind of people who enter my funnel are the kind of people who are going to ask for products that I'm also probably going to find interesting to build for them. Yeah. Now that's such a, a wonderful reply. Thank you. And, um, yeah, I, I really appreciate the fact that you don't that uh, you you don't necessarily like go down the the route of becoming a guru just because something worked out for you. And I think that's uh, that's like a, a high level of of um, yeah humility that that you keep going, which is fantastic because. Uh, at least I recently deleted my Twitter account, which I'm feeling very good about. Um, <laughs> but you know, my, my corner of Twitter uh, was full of, of people basically coming to a lot of other people and young creators and offering them a lot of advice, you know, without necessarily kind of even the ability to deliver because, Hey, we don't appreciate enough the role of luck in these things as well. Um, but this is such an uplifting story and I'm really happy it worked out for you like that. Um, yeah. If, uh, if you said one of your first experiments was to see if writing would be a, a suitable uh, path for you to take, and it was obviously, um, could you share something which maybe you experimented with and just didn't work out, didn't resonate? didn't maybe resonated on one level, but not another wasn't viable or anything like that. Yeah, I did more than a year ago. I started a YouTube channel because a lot of my friends who started writing online, but also had YouTube channels and he really liked it. And I was like, Oh, that's, that's an interesting format. So let's, let's try it. And so same, I committed to publishing one YouTube video every week to see how that was going to go. I didn't have like a set number of them. I had really no idea. With writing, I already knew that I liked writing in general, but YouTube videos, mm. it was completely new for me. So I gave myself permission to stop very quickly if that, that didn't work out. And I kept going for maybe six months and the newsletter grew quite a bit, um, few thousand subscribers, nothing, you know, not exponential growth or anything like this, but enough people watching that it could have kept me going if that was the only thing that I paid attention to. But I realized how draining it was for me. I, part of it is that maybe is that I'm not an, a native English speaker, but, uh, sitting in front of a camera, and just talking to myself like this without getting any <laughs> visual feedback from the person I was talking to felt really weird. And I was always a bit self-conscious about the way I was phrasing things. I was retaking every sentence 10 times. Like just being like, Oh no, mm. that sounded weird. That just, that sounds too weird. Let's, let's do it again. And editing took a long time. I actually liked the editing part. I thought it was fun to do, but it took so long. So all in all, that was taking not only a big chunk of my time during the week, which would have been okay if I, if I really liked it, but the, mm. the emotional labor, the mental energy that, that was not sustainable for me. And I also started noticing that it was impacting my writing because I just felt so drained after doing YouTube videos that I had very little energy left to think creatively about what I wanted to write about for the newsletter that week. So that's an experiment that I stopped and my YouTube channel is still out there. I still get comments from time to time from people who watch them. So that's really nice. And I'm, I'm actually considering experimenting again with it this year. This time I'm trying to set up, um, a little studio where I can just sit down and it's very comfortable and I don't have to set up everything and I don't mm, have yeah. basically minimizing the friction as much as possible. 
and try to see and try to record videos that are less scripted and try to pretend that I'm talking to a friend about a topic. So that's my next experiment, which I haven't started yet. And we'll see if this one works out or not. But that's that's one that the first iteration was not great. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm totally with you on this. The only video I think on my YouTube channel where actually um, like say something like you would say on a solo video is actually I had to get on a call with my friend Max and then talk to him for a while and then it would be like, okay, here's what I think because he's with me on the call so I, I can do it, right? And other than that, it's just, I mean, that's why I have a podcast, <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> right? It's like people just get things out of you and also in terms of creativity, you really can never know where a conversation is going to go, which is also talk about, you know, not having a roadmap and I'm completely committed to it. Like I know great interviewers, great interviewers like Tim Ferriss, you know, come with three pages of questions. For me, it's all about the exploration and the getting lost. And I'm sure that at some points, this is almost, you know, people are like, Hey, wh why are you talking about this now is you should have asked about this or that. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely doubling down on just uh, going with the flow. There's just something more uh, yeah, authentic, more pleasurable about it. And it takes creativity um, to really manage these uh, situations. So I'm, I'm with you on that. Um, yeah, in terms of um, other directions that you have thought about taking things, how do you, oh no, I, I had, I wanted to ask you before then about the kind of attitude that allows you to have the, the integrity facing yourself and the self-trust to really, um, to really listen to yourself when you say like, I'm not doing well, I'm being burned out. This is not creating more energy for me, but draining me. I think that a lot of people out there are doing something which drains them, even if not dramatically, like, but drains them, right? And that's why as a society, we've come across this concept of like five days of work, two days of rest. It's just this, almost this diabolical equation that tells you is like, you know, you can, you can push people this far and then, and then let them be for two days and they'll be back, right? Instead of snapping. Um, and I think it takes a, a special kind of like self-trust to really listen to yourself and act on these things. So do you think that's a, that's a temperamental quality that people are born with? Is that something that you consciously worked on or, um, and I'm talking about even the, the early days of listening to yourself. Like I'm not doing well in my time in Google or anything like that. I think, um, before talking about the temperamental aspect, there's also a privilege aspect to it because to even be able to ask yourself these questions, you do need to feel financially safe enough that yes. you can actually afford to take the break that you need to take, or you can afford to explore other ways of doing things. And unfortunately, as you said, with, you know, with the way work is designed today, a lot of people don't even have that space. Basically they, they have bills to pay. They have, you know, they have kids at home that they worry about. And so even though they know it's not that they're lacking the awareness that they're mm. not doing well, they know, they know too well that it, they're suffering, but they keep on pushing through because there are all of these external pressures that don't allow them the space to, to explore other ways of doing things or, or taking an actual break. Then for people who do have the, the opportunity and don't really take it, I think that there is a lot of inertia in the sense that we've just been taught that that's the way to do things. And if you look around and all of your friends are doing the same thing, it's very common. It's almost a bonding experience for lots of people to go to work, to be completely tired. And then you go for drinks with friends and everyone complains about their boss or the day that they had and the fact that they hate it. And it's, it almost becomes this work becomes this common enemy that we can all mm. bond over criticizing. And then we're back, we're back to, to work and, and we do it. And so 
it, it's also very scary to step out of that and to say, I, I do have that sometimes when I go back home in Paris and I see some of my, of my friends and all of them are complaining about their jobs, even though a lot of them are in positions where they could potentially leave. Mm -hmm. And I almost feel self-conscious saying, I actually love my work. I actually love what I'm doing. Mm. And it almost sounds like this arrogant thing to say. Yeah. So I, I, I genuinely think there's a lot about the way we've been taught, the way society is telling us to behave, the, the way the relationship we're supposed to have with work. We're not supposed to like our, our job that makes people keep on, on bearing with the fact that they actually don't enjoy it, that they're burned out, that they, they, they don't like the kind of projects that they're working on. They know that there's probably an alternative, but it would require not only taking a little break, which people do, or not maybe saying no to a couple of projects, which people do as well. To really deal with the root of the problem, it would require to completely reimagine what their life looks like. Mm. That's scary. That is very scary, I think. Yeah, I think um, for, for, I mean, changing habits, right? A habit is by definition something which we're used to doing. I remember that it was quite a revelation to me thinking about myself. I was never an extremely hard worker and uh, sometimes just uh, for whatever reason, <laughs> this is like deep psychological issue we're not going to get into, but for whatever reason, it's like my way of... Um, kind of responding to stress sometimes is not to engage in more and more things. While other people are like, oh, I feel stressed. I feel anxious. I'm going to be on top of things. I'm going to do the dishes right now. I'm going to do, you know, and it's just two different coping strategies. And I remember thinking about like so interesting that some people are diametrically opposite of me. And there's like some people are lazy. Some people are workaholics. And it's so interesting. And, you know, to the workaholics, it's easier to work. Literally, it's easier for them to work hard, to work hard because it's a habit. And um, yeah, stepping outside of a known paradigm and kind of looking at things afresh and going and finding yourself, whatever that means, um, does seem to be intimidating. And I think uh, a big part of it is definitely being able to question the the myriad voices that we get in our uh, homes or families, definitely our whole culture, which is very work ethic kind of oriented and be able to question it, you know, not even decide against it immediately or something like that, that hey, maybe there's something there. Um, one thing I like seeing is uh, throughout my time on Twitter, uh, my joke was that it's made up basically of 80% like tech workers trying to save their soul, right? And it was very interesting that this story came back again and again of people hitting a kind of an invisible and an undefined um, uh, limit or, or border where they as it's almost, it's not like they worked for many, many years and then sat on mountains of money and decided, okay, now I have enough. I'm going to explore things. No, the, the common theme was I can already tell that I could make a mountain of money, which is why I, I want to think about ways why I don't make a mountain of money, but I make something with myself, which is good for my well-being. And in that sense, I know Twitter is not real life. But in that sense, I think it's a fascinating um it's a fascinating trend that is probably hasn't happened before where relatively a lot of young people in the West, at least get an opportunity to get and deal with these questions like quite early in life. And I think that is uh, very, um, yeah, very encouraging in a way. And I think people are really thirsty for the kind of information on it, which is what you're giving people in your writing a lot of the time. Um, so do you see, do you see it continuing to rise or is there now a kind of, um, uh, maybe a plateau that this is hitting with, um, world economics, just kind of turning a different way right now? I definitely don't think we have 
hit a plateau yet because I think these questions run deeper than just, and I absolutely agree with you, by the way, that it is a big part, the fact that especially in tech, people have been earning so much money so early that it allows, allows them to start grappling with these questions a lot earlier and not when they're retiring and asking, oh, mm. so what, what's going on now? Um, so there, there's the, the financial aspect, but there is also a, a questioning in general of ambition what like you talked about purpose and meaning earlier and and that's a more general trend that's been happening over the past decades right that people do not believe anymore a lot the younger generation do not believe anymore in the narrative that they've been fed growing mm -hmm. up that ladder that i described i just keep on climbing to take the next step and play the next level of that video game that we designed for you. Mm. Once you started asking these questions, I don't think there's any way to go back and to just go back to the video game and pretend that you haven't seen that there's another way of doing things. The problem though, is that a lot of people are aware there's another way of doing things, would like to explore it, but are not quite sure what are the steps to do this. And especially if you've been taught to follow a very specific map. And now you're told, okay, there's another way to do it, but there's no map. <laughs> you just really have to yeah. go and figure it out for yourself. And so a lot of people are feeling paralyzed where they feel like they're not quite happy where they are right now, but they're not quite sure how to get where they would like to be. And you talked about gurus earlier. I think this is also why so many of them are popular because what you're selling is yes. an artificial step-by-step -step recipe that says, yes. just do this, do what I did, and you'll get the same results, which never works, but makes a lot of money when, when you sell people that kind of, that kind of dream. I don't think those gurus would be so popular if people had the confidence that they can go and explore and, and that it, it's actually going to be all right. And especially if you're someone working in tech and you have that financial safety already, it is completely okay to take a little bit of time to explore, make mistakes, fail, have a few experiments that don't go to plan because you'll have learned a lot more in the process than if you just stick to what you know right now. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, yeah, you mentioned not not going into these things without a safety net, uh, and I completely agree. This also echoes uh, things that uh, Steph Smith mentioned here uh, mentioned on this podcast when she came. So uh, I take you both to be wise women, and it sounds like very good advice. I can testify that in my case, you know, um, I have this double life that I'm leading, and away from the online world, I'm a tour guide, and that like gives me all the money that I need to to do this, and um, yeah, it's been it's been such an interesting uh, journey also doing this because I I went online and started this podcast when it was the height of the pandemic and I didn't have work as it is. I just decided to kind of invest in myself, uh, gamble on myself, and just do what I love. You know, because again, from a from a place of privilege and um, very interesting because I, I, at first, I didn't have a job. So I was thinking about oh, how this thing is going to make money and was going and very early on got on Twitter and saw a lot of the marketing gurus and was always skeptical. So I never quite uh, tried everything that's on offer, but um, was definitely attracted to that because it does give you a way of like, as you say, do this and you'll be fine. Um the, the interesting thing is that you do something like that. And even if you muster the, the courage to, to go for it and start, you know, then you have some sort of fire with, within you. And it's been two weeks and it's been two months. Like what happens when it's been four months, you know, it's these, these voices from society are not going away and the scrutiny just gets more and more like under your skin. It's like, 
is there any future to that in like, you know, like financially is there anything like that and it's it's actually like a very interesting experience to to face that and keep going and um I'm still not sure what it is. I also had the feeling that I- I'm possibly crazy, you know, because here's <laughs> literally like almost everyone is doubting this. And, you know, to a certain extent, they're correct. Like I'm still not making money from anything I do online. But it's it's very interesting to be in that position of like actually feeling insane at times because you seem to be in such a tiny minority of people who are doing something that doesn't have any sort of uh, monetary horizon or as you say like bringing value to society or doing something which is already recognized to be valuable which is sometimes managing the lottery <laughs> or something like that yeah but when everybody around you seems to be unhappy and they call you crazy maybe that's a good thing right <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I double down on it and it's very interesting. Like right now, my experiment, I wonder what you'll think of my experiment. My experiment is to have a podcast and like do everything wrong when it comes like, which means just release it on my Substack. That's it. I don't even have a Twitter account. See what happens if I do it for years, because that's how I enjoy doing it. What do you think? <laughs> That's a good experiment. It, I mean, it fits everything that I mentioned earlier. It's simple. It's something you can do. It's something that you enjoy. It has many, in your case, if you do it over years, many trials. <laughs> so you can collect a lot of data. And even if it fails, you'll have enjoyed the process. So it's perfect. Yeah, I. It's it's really interesting to me to see if there's some sort of threshold that can be crossed, even though you're not using any kind of technique to to hook people with any type of, um, you know, like very enticing um, headline or post or anything like that. I don't know. I'll I'll report back in in five years for sure. <laughs> Um, wh- what about you? Like what's, um, what's in store next, except for, uh, going back to, to YouTube for a bit in terms, in terms of, uh, of a medium to explore in terms of ideas that would be, um, adding a new, a new dimension to what you do. Like, let's say your R and D, um, department, what does it look like? Yeah. So that's actually one of my current experiments is doing research as part of the academic world. And that's been really interesting. So again, like each cycle in this case looks like researching to prepare for a study that we're going to conduct, recruiting participants, conducting the study, analyzing the data, writing the paper, etc., and trying to make it a little bit better every time that you, you conduct another study. And so at the micro, level, that's what it looks like. At the macro level, my experiment is to know whether working in academia is something that I would like to do in the future. So far, not looking too good. I don't think (laughs) (laughs) I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying so many parts of the research process. I'm enjoying having access to your lab and playing with all the toys and learning about all of the different instruments and working with participants and absolutely love that. Around that, everything that's around that, the, the red tape, the, the admin, the, all of this, the, the slowness of every single decision that you make, I don't think is something that I will want to have to go through for many years to come. Mm. And so I'm already thinking about what would be another experiment, uh, an iteration of this, where I can keep the things that I like without the things that I don't like. Would that be starting my own lab at some point in the future, which would take years because that would cost a lot of money, etc. So I'm just brainstorming ideas, but that's that's another experiment that I have going on at the moment and where... I kind of feel like I have the answer already, but I'm staying open until the experiment is completed. 
Yeah, it's it's so interesting. You know, it's it's one of those things as as with almost anything where you the more you want to do more of something you like, like the farther away you get from it, I feel like. Uh I I only have a bachelor's degree, but uh I was lucky enough to be sent to a a kind of uh, international convention at uh, Tufts University for my university as like a scholarship program. And there I saw like old money, East Coast, US uh, academic institution, right? And um, got to eat dinner like with the dean and director and all that. And I, I knew that I should probably like exchange words with them so I could get a recommendation or they would know my, you know, play this game. And then you realize it's like, oh, this is actually what it's going to be like. If I actually want to do good science, now I have to be a good politician at these things and stuff. And I was like, eh, I think I'm gonna, <laughs> gonna pass and then do something. So, um, yeah, that's that's that was the the result for my experiment with academia is that, you know, suddenly you find yourself, which I think happens with a lot of things, right? It's like I had a friend who was a uh, really liked scuba diving. At some point, started a, a scuba diving club, and before you know it, you're a manager, not a scuba diver, right? Yes, uh, that, that's so interesting, <laughs> and that's uh, that's a very common experience in academia when I talk with people around me on the team, colleagues. A lot of them who are a lot more senior than I am regret the earlier times in their career where they could spend their, all of the time in the lab. Mm. And now there there are so many meetings to attend and, you know, grants. Kind of like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Grant writing, <laughs> et cetera. And so at the same time, they, you know, they, they, they wouldn't change their, their jobs because they, they love the research. They actually do care a lot, but they see everything else that as, you know, something that they have to bear with. It's the, almost the price to pay basically mm. in order to be able to conduct the research that they actually care about. And that's why I'm starting to think, is there another way to go about this, which obviously has the like the arrogance and the naivete of someone who's so new to the academic world that I'm like, is there mm -hmm. another way to, to do this? And people who've been in academia for decades would straight away tell me, no, absolutely not. That's just the, the way we do things. If you want to do good science, so maybe the answer will be no, but at the moment I'm really enjoying exploring that question. And if, it turns out that they were right, that there's no other way to do it than fine. But I, I'd rather go through that cycle of learning and experimentation and see if that fails and just but see it through. Yeah, I, I assume, um, well, I don't know why I assume it, but have you uh, read uh, Adam Astriani's uh, newsletter about his experiments with like writing articles outside of academia? Okay, so Adam Mastriani has a great Substack and... Uh, Basically, he released an academic paper, just completely um, gave up on sending it to a peer-reviewed journal and just posted it online. And you know, and and also didn't write it in this uh, really boring language that that scientific papers use, and uh, got great feedback from people of saying thank you. There's we need that basically, and uh, we need to democratize um, science and take it a little bit outside of the ivory tower and make it accessible to people. So know that you're not alone in this, and there are some really bright people working on on doing just that. Because you know, I think we all we also saw quite recently during the pandemic and and other tumultuous times that. Um, there is, I think, because of this kind of uh, science going into the ivory tower and losing touch with all the people, there is a lot less trust in the scientific method and really what happens. And a lot of it is not for bad reasons either. Um, so there are a lot of problems with science right now. So that's that sounds really, really exciting. Um yeah, I'd like, I guess we, we talked about like chronologically a little bit about your journey, but 
What about um, time frames? So not to demand anything that you wouldn't do because you're not a guru in terms of, of time frames, but just to get a clearer picture, um, when was it about that you that you were working at Google? When was kind of your reckoning where you came came to terms with the fact that you're not doing too well? And how long did it take to establish uh, the alternative? Yeah, so I worked at Google from 2013 to 2017. And it was in the last six months that I started realizing that something was wrong. I had been there long enough that I had a very clear idea of what success looked like at Google. I knew what kind of projects I had to work on, who I had to work with. And, you know, I, I basically had this map where I knew that if I applied those steps in a certain number of years, I could probably be at a director level. And it really felt like someone had spoiled the movie for me before <laughs> watching it. And I, I mm. lost interest basically. Mm. <laughs> Um, and so I decided to quit. And at the time I didn't realize it. I thought I was doing something completely different, but I was still following a script. I decided to work on a startup because that's just, I was in San Francisco at the time. And that's just what you did. You yeah. left <laughs> the big tech company and you did a startup. I thought I was being very original, but not really. And I, I did everything and it's just, it's very like funny for me to, to think about right now, but I did everything by the book. I was reading everything on the Y Combinator website and I, people told me you need a co-founder. So I found a co-founder that I didn't know at all from before, big mistake. Um, not that there's, there was anything wrong with them as a person, but we were completely incompatible. We were in it for completely different reasons and the relationship, the working relationship didn't, didn't work out. And so then I figured that the way I approached that startup was not the right way. And so I tried again and I did it through an accelerator this time. It also didn't work out, but I made one, one of my best friends was my co-founder at mm. the time. So didn't get a startup, but gained a really, really good friend through the process. It was Which more is a, much better than hitting it big time with a startup, but then having a fallout with an old friend. So. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, it was a bit of a yeah, friendship accelerator for us. And, uh, yeah. um, that, that second iteration made me realize that it, the, the way I approached the startup was not the problem. It's just that I didn't really want to, to lead a startup to the whole raising millions and, and, um, trying to, um, move fast and break things. Or I can't remember exactly what the saying was at the time it was not really the way that I wanted to work. And so that's when I went back to school in 2018, was it 18, 2018? did my master's degree in neuroscience. I, in 2019 and my second year, I started writing on Nest Labs for my newsletter. Then beginning of 2020, I started, I launched the private community, which was the first time in my life I made enough money outside of a, like not being an employee, basically outside mm -hmm. of a paycheck to be able to pay my rent and, and live comfortably. And uh, I started my PhD in 2021. So we're in 2023 now <laughs> recording this episode for people listening in the future. <laughs> so it's roughly five years, a five, five year journey. Yeah. And I think, I think that's, that's probably a, a fair kind of uh, a good time frame to, to think about like doing anything where you're starting a new and relying on yourself to, to provide anything. Um, yeah, this, this is awesome. Like, I really like your story and, and how it, how, and the, the turns and twists in it, um, for sure. So thank you for, for sharing it with me. Um, I wondered like, 
because our first contact came be, uh, through a Twitter thread that talked a little bit about success, like I wanted to, like that could be a whole different podcast, which we're not going to do right now. Um, but how, how has the, the concept of, of success like shifted from the days of like, oh, success is going up the, the ranks and, and what is it what is it today and what is the what is the flow that you find yourself enjoying um yeah what what are the like realistically what are some of the of the best moments of the week month year or something and what are some of the challenges that still crop up the for me the the main to kind of like success it's not metrics, but the way I, me I, I measure success for myself, two main things uh, is how I feel when I wake up in the morning. It's not always good, but I try to have more days where I feel good than mm. days where I feel tired or anxious or stressed out. And the second one is how present I can be for the people I care about. This is also something that I pay very close attention to. And I also you know, try to, it's okay to not be able to always be here. Obviously I'm, you know, not a machine. I am not, I can't always be a hundred percent, but I, if I notice that it's been, for example, a couple of weeks that I haven't been really present, I haven't been, haven't been here for my friends or for my family, that's something that I'll pay attention to. So success to me, the, the good parts are, are that basically those, those two main things which obviously come with lots of different layers. Being happy in the morning usually means that I'm working on something interesting, means that I'm not overworked. It also means talking about other people that I've had time to connect with the people I love, etc. So it's, it's a lot of different factors. And in terms of the, the, the more negative um, aspects of, of success, the dark side a little bit is that I, I do love my job so much at the moment that it can be hard sometimes to disconnect and just to say, we're done mm. for the day, close your laptop, go do something else. I can find myself working quite late in the evening, which is ironic because I write a lot about managing your time and managing your energy. <laughs> and sometimes I kind of laugh as well, that's I'm typing. Why. That's why, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I type those words and I'm like, oh, it's 9 p.m. and you're, you're writing this article about <laughs> finding that balance. Um, but I'm also trying to be as honest as possible about it with, with people that I, it's not that I, I got it all right and it's always perfect. It's more of an aspiration and of like trying to be careful and paying attention when it's a pattern that's starting to 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 build up versus something that happens from time to time. So yeah, it's, um, it's loving what you do can also sometimes mean that you have to make an extra effort to disconnect, you know, mm -hmm. when you go to bed in the evening and you're like, oh, that would be a great idea for an article, or maybe I could, I could, you know, work on this project. I could launch this. I could connect with that person, etc. So that's, that's definitely something that I struggle a little bit with, but I do consider it such a nice problem to have compared to so many other problems that you can have in in your in your work that I'm not complaining too much about it. <laughs> true, true. Now that's wonderful. Yeah, I think it all adds up to a, a kind of thought that I had recently, uh, and not because I came up with it or it's original or anything. But one of the one of the videos that I did watch on your YouTube channel a few months back was the one about uh, toxic productivity. So I definitely see here that you're um, echoing the same, the same kind of insights from there. And I love it. And I think productivity really brings us to the concept of, of looking at ourselves as machines. Right. And I, if that, that's something that I've been thinking a lot about, and I want to tell listeners, um, like you're not a machine. Okay. We're not machines. And I love that you just said it. I'm not a machine. And it's, it's not just in terms, it, it's true on so many levels. So first of all, I'm reading a book, um, that a big part of it is showing how biologically we're not machines. Um, second of all, philosophically, you know, machines have set purposes that don't really change. A knife is going to be the machine you use for cutting no matter what. And the wood chipper is going to chip wood till the end of its days. But 
we have the privilege of waking up every morning and just change our purpose if we want for that day. And I think that is a really important thing to do because you are going to wake up some days uh, either physically ill or just mentally drained. And for that day, you might want to drop your purpose as this super productive person who's going to conquer the world and show everybody, you know? Um, so I, I really like how that kind of um, naturally comes to my mind hearing you. Um, yeah. yeah, and Laura, thank you so, so much for, for coming on. This has been a, a blast as I had hoped. Um, before, before we do say goodbye, I'd love for you to share with listeners um, any kind of um, information about where you could be find, uh, found in your projects and, and et cetera. Yes. Uh, first, thank you so much for having me. This was such a great chat. And if listeners want to learn more about my work, the easiest is to go to my website. It's nestlabs.com. And you can sign up to my newsletter there, which, as I said, I send every Thursday. That's wonderful. So I'll link to that. And uh, one last thing, I want everybody to know that before we hit record, I pronounced your last name perfectly and then I didn't when it mattered. So I'm sorry and I'm going to work about it, work on it for next time. Um, yeah, so fine. you're welcome to come back anytime and thank you again. Thank you so much. Thanks.